The Failure Hypothesis is a Maledro digital production. If you're interested in making business content with interest or want to tell your story in a future episode, you can contact us at info at maledrodigital.com. Hi, my name is Vivian Chan, and you're listening to The Failure Hypothesis. Over the course of this podcast series, I'm going to be talking to some of the most interesting leaders from all around the world, from Brazil to the UK, from India to America, all about failure. We'll be testing the simple hypothesis that radical honesty about failure is the secret to success. But is it really that simple? Sometimes, is it better to just keep moving forward? Why can't we just think like a rocket scientist when it comes to failure? To help us find out the answer to these questions and more, we've assembled a dream team of guests that includes the chief scientist of a global tech company, the president of a major record label, a private equity titan, and a Webby award-winning podcaster. For new listeners who want to learn more about the failure hypothesis and the timeless mission to get the leaders of today and tomorrow all talking more openly about failure, please check out episode one, wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Scott Macken, as the managing partner of Denim Capital, a global private equity firm that specializes in sustainable energy. He works in one of the industries most critical to the future of our planet. As a lawyer turned CEO turned private equity titan who has worked all around the world. He has, over the last 30 years, enjoyed the type of career that many aspiring executives dream of. But as we shall talk about today, the path hasn't always been so smooth and straightforward. And really, Scott's success has been hard won. Behind all of the accolades, titles, and deals, I know Scott as a thoughtful and determined leader who gives willingly of his time to mentor and invest in future leaders, especially women. I have personally benefited from his support and guidance, and I'm delighted to have him on the show to share his story. So, Scott, let's talk a little bit about failure. Are you ready to go back? I am, and and first, thank you very much for having me here, and I'm very proud also to be involved with you as an investor. Amazing. So... You have the floor. Where would you want to take us on this journey um, when you want to start talking about a failure story? Well, I have not scripted this, so let's <clears throat> let's maybe uh, get right into where things got tough. Um, I had been running the energy division for a company that, when I first joined it, I believe it was a Fortune 500 company. It was a conglomerate. It was called Ogden Corporation out of New York City. And um, I had run their energy division for nine years. And it was clear that the rest of the company, which had disparate interests in entertainment-related entities and businesses, same thing in aviation, a little bit with some environmental services, that um, the wheels maybe were coming off a little bit. Uh, in terms of the issues that, that had happened there. So uh, they had, there was a proxy fight. And in order to win the proxy fight, they brought on a couple of new directors 
One had been a private equity guy who'd done quite well in the um, entertainment space. <clears throat> and another fellow had run McKinsey at the end of a very long career there. Um, and so that happened in 1999. And they, um, in September of 1999, moved the... How, how old were you, if I may ask? Uh, well, I've got to do quick math here. <laughs> I was 42. Okay. Um, I'd been running the energy division since age 33. Um, they uh, moved the CEO out and asked me to uh, take over as CEO um, of the company. And uh, it was a, actually a pretty eventful day. There was a hurricane. I can't remember what it was. But our offices were at Tupin Plaza above Madison Square Garden. And, and that hurricane had been moved up the, the, um, the East Coast Mm. And it was coming into New York City that day. In celebration. And in celebration. <laughs> well, uh, there was some tension first because, you know, the board dismissed everybody but the board. And the CEO who was about to be moved out was pacing in front of my office ah. with his general counsel and his CFO. And then the, they sent a lawyer down to come get me. And I had to walk past them all and go upstairs and talk to the board. Um, and they asked me if I'd take the position. And did you know beforehand that they were going to ask you? I didn't. It was one of a few things that could have happened. Okay. Uh, but I had talked to Goldman Sachs, uh, who had been an advisor for the company, uh, and they said it was their recommendation to the board that I take over um, with some conditions. Mm -hmm. And one of those conditions was that I bring in a restructuring advisor. Um, and, and that was, you know about, as I sort of referenced before, that, that the wheels were sort of coming off some of the other divisions. Um, and uh, so I had to walk past uh, the CEO and his general counsel and his CFO and, uh, and go upstairs and, and then come back down again. Mm -hmm. And then they mm -hmm. asked for him. Mm -hmm. So- How uh, did you feel? Were you nervous? And... Uh, yeah, of course I was. Yeah. yeah, walking past them, any words exchanged? <laughs> um, you don't have no, to share there if you no, don't want to. <laughs> no, there, there really wasn't at the time. Mm -hmm. It was. I think people could understand what was going on. There really, there really wasn't at the time. Mm -hmm. So, how did you feel? I mean, a young age, being able to be kind of appointed a CEO, and but you knew that the challenge ahead was going to be quite immense. Yeah. So the first thing I did was issue, uh, you know, as the, the press release that said you were going to be the CEO, the first thing I did was say, in any earnings, earnings guidance that has been given by the company, I disavow, and we're going to not give a dividend anymore. Okay. How was that received? Oh, uh, well, as you can imagine, <laughs> uh, the stock went from somewhere around $21, $22 to somewhere around $10, $11 in a day. Mm. And hedge funds mostly came in and bought up that stock. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was my first day at work. <laughs> so why did you choose to start with that story? Um, well, I think, I think it's got a, a combination of, of sort of, you know, work related, um, things, uh, personal things, uh, that I, I just think resonates. And, and to be honest, I mean, you, you know, uh, as I've gotten a bit older, it's easier to talk about failure, mm -hmm. but still that one's enough removed mm -hmm. that 
you know, the sting isn't isn't quite so bad. How do you feel right now talking about it? Um, I feel fine. Okay. Yeah, I feel fine talking about it. It's good. Not much sting then. No, no. no. I feel worse about England losing the other day. <laughs> As we all. Um, what? How did you sleep that night? Sorry, I, I, this might be too personal, but I was just really curious, especially <clears throat> with the emotions. I uh, lived out in the suburbs of New York City, and I knew this was going to be sort of 24-7, so I took a hotel mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that night and <clears throat> asked my assistant to go, you know, go home and get my bag and whatever, and um, I probably got four or five hours sleep, and, and then was running on adrenaline. I'm very curious about the, the, the kind of whole chronological order of the fact that uh, you were appointed CEO at 42 and then leading up to it, what what is the biggest failure moment for you in that journey? Uh, you know, that's, it's, that's a, that's a really hard question. Um, I think, I think there's just sort of twofold, um, but maybe, maybe I should sort of take you through it chronologically a little bit to, to help answer your question. So I'm appointed CEO. I figure out that there's a hole because of these public arenas. Mm -hmm. I find a solution. The banks don't want that solution. I then try to do an IPO. You know, we, we uh, bring the these disparate banking facilities all together into one facility. We button it up and we give ourselves enough time in that facility to try an IPO the next year. Mm -hmm. So we do all that. We're getting ready to file for an IPO. Enron happens. Oh. Pretty soon, nobody wants to touch anything in the public markets has anything to do with energy, particularly if it's fraught with complicated things about letters of credits yep, and, yep, yep. And, and hockey facilities and things like that. So that market just dried up. So I very quickly put a for sale sign in the entire company. And again, nobody wanted any piece of that. And that was what, 18 months after? Um, so I was made CEO in September of, of 99 um, and brought the banks the deal in the first quarter of 2000. You know, they, they turned that down first, second quarter, 2000. Went in the first half of uh, probably May of 2001 for an IPO. Mm -hmm. Enron didn't really blow up, but the public markets, they oh, hadn't yeah. blown up yet. Yeah. The Barons, the famous Barons article hadn't come out yet, but you could feel the public sure. markets knew it. They were receding mm. already. I had gotten calls from equity analysts asking me questions about things on Enron's balance sheet. And, and I mean, people were starting to figure it out. Um, and so then uh, we then started a sales process and couldn't get that. So by 2002, I knew I had to file bankruptcy. Wow. How'd you feel with that um, journey? three years I felt um, pretty crummy mm -hmm. felt pretty crummy I, I knew I'd done everything I possibly could with the exception of being at that table mm -hmm. with the banks negotiating that banking facility um, you know I, it wasn't that I didn't you know I delegated I knew all the things it, it would have been whether your my force of personality or my knowledge there at the table would have effectuated yep. more runway what we would have done with that runway, I don't know, because the public markets, they always take a while to come back after things like Enron. But in any event, 
I knew I'd done pretty much everything I, I could do. My energy business was prospering. Mm. I didn't, you know, I didn't need any money from the banks. Mm-hmm. Needed nothing from them. Mm-hmm. What I what I had was these letters of credit that I needed to get rid of. And um, there, are, if you ha- if you owe somebody a hundred dollars and you can't pay them, then hedge funds will buy it for sixty cents or whatever yep. on the dollar. And now you're, your new lenders are hedge funds. And quite often they'll repackage something and off you go. And off you go, yeah. But when you have letters of credit, they can't do that. Hedge funds can't issue you letters of credit. And so it was really a sort of Damocles around my neck. These letters of credit were a, a real problem. And what I had also was these springing letters of credit requirement um, at the um, at my uh, level. It was, it was something that David Sokol had negotiated earlier on. And so you had more letter of credit requirements. And I, I needed to protect that energy business. So I needed to file bankruptcy because you get the automatic stay. Yeah. It was it was both empowering and humiliating and in the midst of this at age 44 uh, I was told that I had um, heart disease oh wow Um, I had a GP my GP called me up on a Sunday night and he said you know I'm just looking at your electrocardiogram compared to last year's and it's different um, and I, you know, it's probably nothing that we should go see a specialist. So I went to see, and this know, is all while, you know, the in-between phone calls are getting bankruptcy filed. Well, the first time this happened was actually 2001. So you're in the middle of all that. And, yeah. and uh, I went to these cardio specialists and I did a, a lithium stress test where they run lithium through your body. You get on a treadmill and then they take 60 plus photos of your, of the going through your system and they see if there's blockage. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, you might have some blockage here, you know, um, come back in a year. And, you know, I was, um, what helped keep me sane is I either ran or played basketball or did something every single day. I mean, I was yeah, in exactly. very, very good shape. Yeah, exactly. You were talking about basketball and, yeah. Um, and uh, so I went so back. So this is unexpected, completely unexpected. T- totally out of the blue. And nobody in my family had died of heart ailment. So the next year, I, I went to my GP and he said, you know, this you really need to go back and see another specialist. I did. Went to see that specialist. They said, you know, we think you have blockage now. We think you have two arteries blocked. And I go back to my GP and he goes, you know, I think this is worthwhile to get a second opinion. You know, Mm -hmm. usually I wouldn't say that, Mm -hmm. but, you know, an angiogram is not the world's biggest deal. They put a catheter up inside you. They shoot dye in you and the procedure. So I went to the head of cardiology at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. It's where Bill Clinton got his stent put in. You know, this guy, I literally, he had so many titles, doctorates, that it was on both sides of his card. Wow. <laughs> and he told me, definitely, you've got two arteries, in, uh, arteries involved. And if it's a third, then you're going to need bypass surgery. Wow. So I had 10 days between then and when I can go and do my angiogram, where I know I have to file bankruptcy. And I'm being told I have heart disease. And that was maybe the lowest moment in my life. I was going to say, actually, did you think it was stress-induced? Did you think it was actually correlated with the professional, what you had to go through? Blockage? I don't think so, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Who knows? I didn't know. I just know I was, I think the technical term is I was in the shitter. I just, <laughs> it just really sucked. It really sucked bad. And I mean, if that is your lowest, lowest moment... How did you pick yourself back up? So I went for the angiogram 
and this male nurse starts quizzing me before heart disease in the family, this, that, and everything else. And then he says to me, you know, they have false positives sometimes. Mm. And I said, yeah, but I've had two opinions on this. Mm-hmm. So um, they give me a little Valium. They put me in the uh, operating room, operating, operating theater. I feel the, cold, the hot rush of dye shoot up the back of my brain. I watch these two doctors. It's a teaching hospital. And an older British doctor and a young American, and they're you know, just watching the screen, and you can see what's going on up there, and they're talking and talking. I can't hear a word they say. So after a while, finally, the younger guy turns to me and he says something, and I go, I was like always going to grab him by the collar. It's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> What'd you say? And he goes, Oh, your heart's fine. I wish I had your heart. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'd love to tell you that I felt instantaneous relief. To this day, I don't feel relief. Oh. To this day, I'm still dented by, you know, sort of what happened there of being told. I remember walking on a hike with my kids thinking, you know, if I have to have bypass surgery and I do all this stuff, I'm this young age. Um, you know. I, Walk me through that. Why, why do you feel that you're still maybe in a dent in that whole situation? Because it's the unknown of why two separate opinions, you know. The, it was funny, the head cardiologist at Columbia Presbyterian came in and he was actually pissed that he was wrong. He goes, really? He says, how could that be? So, well, maybe your lungs got in the way of this thing. You know, it was, oh, it was my fault, I'm sorry. My lungs got in the way. It's probably because I run all the time. And I, he, was, he had once told me I was Jim Fix waiting to happen. You know, the, the, the runner who died of a heart attack. Again, my fault. Um, <laughs> It's just, it's, it's uh, I think, leftover from my youth of, uh, I always harken back to um, The World According to Garp, um, which is a great book, and they made it into a great movie with Robin Williams, but they used to warn the kids all the time the, about the undertow. Yeah. And it was all this anxiety in the family about the undertow, and yeah. the kids thought this was something called the undertoad, which was this big frog that would pull them into the water and take them away. <laughs> There's all this concern about things going wrong. And I think I had that concern all the time. Yeah. And aha, that was my aha moment. See, I was concerned for a reason. Yep. I am going to have this heart disease and everything's going to be messed up. I'm filing bankruptcy with this company. And, you know, uh, my kids are being put in the in the crapper themselves with my ex-wife. And everything is bad. Everything is bad right now. So yeah, it was it was pretty bad, and I, and and uh, you know, I, it, like I don't suffer from it today. But if I go back and talk about it now, it's not like I can pull back and say, "Ha ha, that was a relief. That's fine." I've, you know, I you don't you don't you don't feel that way. I imagine there's plenty of people who had medical things in the past where it still haunts them. You know, this one, you know, I know the basic structure of my heart is great, and yep. I know I'm still you know in great shape and all that. But yeah, it definitely dented me. You know, so that's the purely sort of personal side, but uh, on the uh, on the sort of career side about, uh, you know, being CEO and presiding over something for bankruptcy, had I come out mm-hmm. of that bankruptcy, which we did, I brought in um, uh, a net operating loss vehicle that Sam Zell, uh, the, the real estate guy is known as the Grave Dancer, um, uh, you know, the sort of guy who bought the Chicago Tribune, put in very little money, overlevered it, and then we all went bankrupt. And mm-hmm. so he generated NOLs and things like that. So I brought him in, and had I come out and had, had the banks and the Sam Zell and everybody said, 
you are our savior. You're the guy who walked us through the forest and got, got us out the other side or walked us through the valley of death and got us on the other side. We want you to stay there. I probably wouldn't have been felt good. But instead, the bank group said, we don't want you anymore Interesting. at the end. And the reason why is because I was more interested in preserving value than the workout guys at the banks. And concomitant to preserving value, I had a really good energy team. I had you know people who had, were dedicating their lives to doing something that worked. We didn't have an ounce of problems with my energy stuff. We grew our EBITDA by quite a bit during the bankruptcy. We were adding projects during the bankruptcy. You know, we had little problems here or there. Uh, for a while, we weren't paid in India. Well, get in line. Kavanta, I renamed the company Kavanta Energy, ultimately made two times money on that Indian project. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, we had some perturbations for a while, but we ultimately made money on that. Other projects, you know, they, they did quite well, I mean, on, on all of that. But that I wasn't giving the banks what they wanted. Yeah. I was, um, you know, they wanted, again, 60 or 70 cents on the dollar. They wanted me to tear everything apart and sell it in pieces. And I knew that we weren't going to necessarily make money that way. But I did sell some assets for them to appease them. I'd already sold enough assets and was generating enough income that I didn't need any of their money. And, and, I, and when you're talking about preserving value, here you're specifically talking about keeping the team? or um, the, the team and the assets, which in very much in a gestalt fashion, uh, were worth more uh, than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. But this is what I mean. After... Sam Zell took over that company and I left. He had a lot of EBITDA from Waste Energy, which was not a growth business, but it was solid business, from uh, the other independent power stuff that we had done overseas. Had he added in wind and solar and got into that, wind and added that, you ultimately would have added a growth trajectory to that. Um, and a, a growth multiple on your EBITDA and it would have upped the, the value of that. Instead, they made a, a really dumb decision of just going, of selling the IPP stuff and going headlong into garbage and wasted, you know, a lot of money. I mean, 50 million here, 50 million there, trying to do waste energy in places like China where they just got their head handed to them yep. and, and other things like that. And so if you kept that business as it was, a mixture of independent power, waste energy, and then you grew it from there with wind and solar, that would have been a hugely successful company that would have transacted quite well. Um, and the team would have prospered. Mm -hmm. And I felt, I felt, you know, I, I guess in my family, I was sort of born with the responsibility gene. My mom had it too. I mean, you know, yeah, keeping, mother five. Five kids, keeping five kids together. <laughs> Um, and, and let me tell you, we were no box of chocolates, none of us, um, you know, even though, even though I did my homework, um, and I was the only one who ever did of the five brothers, I was still not a box of chocolates. <laughs> so she had the responsibility gene, but I had that as well. And I felt responsible that those people who were run, you know, working in that energy business day to day, they needed stability and security and not to just have this company torn apart by people. There were... When you go into bankruptcy, uh, bottom feeders go into the banks and they say, I'll give you X for this business. Well, of course, X is bottom feeding. Yeah. And then they, you know, if they were successful with that deal, 
not only would you, I mean, the banks would be taking a gun and shooting themselves in their head, but they had that as a habit. I mean, once you get in the workout, guys, they're not about creating value. It's, I get paid just to done be done dusted with this. I don't care how much value I destroy. I don't care how many people get laid off. I don't care, you know, I'll go home and kick my cat when the day's over. I did, it, none of this matters. Um, and and, I, and I, I have to say there's one exception, and he's deserving of a, of a name. There was a fellow named Tom Biagi at Bank of America who was not like that. Mm. He was a really good guy. Um, mm. He was an excellent guy. And I don't want to condemn all of But when you've got a rabble of 37 banks and the lowest common denominator, you you know, they, people had lender fatigue and mm. they just wanted out. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, I, I would say um, I, I fought against them. And so I, you know, it was a kick in the teeth to be told. It was, hey, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yep. To, to leave Havanta, I mean, I exited with a nice package, that's great, but oh my God, I've been in that company for 17 years being promoted from assistant general counsel at a subsidiary to CEO of the, of the parent entity. I, I, it's time to move on. And, you know, I've had a wonderful career at Denim and, and continue to, I, and it's been fantastic. And I've learned so much about the private, the alternative side of the business, which is much more sane to me mm-hmm. than the public mm-hmm. side of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I enjoy it a lot more. So thank God that happened. But at the time, it was a kick in the teeth. So it's interesting because what you called, which I love, called the responsibility gene, um, it actually helped shape your own definition, right? So in the professional, the bank's perspective, they would have seen it as a failure or not as much of a success as it could have been. But you redefined what failure meant. And you kind of went, no, from my responsibility gene, this is the way I want to go from it. And you actually turned that around and that ended up being the right kind of exit for you. Yeah, you could say I took one for the team at, mm-hmm. the, at the end of the day. Um, but never a good deed goes unpunished. I mean, I have people from that day, from that era who are great and they get it and they understand everything went on. Uh, the guy who took over I had one request, and he had been in my college dorm when uh, back in uni. I mean, and he had been with me for 15 of the 17 years. Um, and I lobbied very hard to make him CEO of that entity when I left. What was that one request? One request was when all the people from the field come in, that's when I'd like to have a goodbye dinner. Um, because I don't want to just sit with 15 schmoes that I see all the time in any yeah, event. Yeah. I want the people in the field were always kind of special to me. Yeah. And uh, how often did they come in? I would generally see them once a year, not necessarily in, you know, but at least, you know, out in the field or we'd have yep. events somewhere. Um, and, but I got to know them. I, you know, I'd been a long time there with them. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt like more connected to them mm-hmm. in many respects. And they never did that. Um, they, oh wow! They never Not even that. that one request. Yeah. Um, so they did other things that were very accommodating, um, but not that. Are you still connected to some of those people in the field today? Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of them have reached out to me on LinkedIn, and you know, go back and forth. Uh, and and then there were people in the headquarters office that were also that I felt pretty connected to as well, and, and you know, I've, I've stayed in touch with. So. You know, it, it was good. I, I could definitely hold my head high. But if you talk about failure, right? I mean, that's the purpose of all this talk about mm-hmm. failure. Um, 
even though I look at those arenas as sort of an immovable object, I still tend to think that I could have brought about a different resolution um, knowing what I know now. I don't can't tell you exactly what it would be. It might have been taking the whole company by hostage and going to bankrupt and saying, I'm going to file everything bankruptcy right away. Um, and here's and and sort of scaring them into doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. When I did go into bankruptcy, I had a letter of intent from KKR to take the energy group out of bankruptcy. But again, they didn't want that. The bank group wanted, as a again, when you're dealing with lowest common denominator, they wanted really something more destructive of value than than to do that. Um, they wanted me to just tear everything apart. And and I, as I say, I tore a little bit here or there, but I I, I didn't tear everything apart. Um, but I, you know, I nobody wants to be age 45, having led a major company through a bankruptcy, being asked by the bank group. Yeah, you know, we don't want to see you anymore. I mean, probably because I was, you know, they were just pissed at me for, well, I know it was because they were pissed at me. Um, but I preserved them value. I preserved them. I got them a lot more value than they would have got if they had done what they wanted to do. And what would the present Scott say to that? Now are we going into therapy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, it just came to me to ask that question uh, about... I, yeah, it's it's interesting that you you have a sense of what if and you know thinking about that. I uh, I did ultimately when I went to bankruptcy got great advice by a, a fellow out of Chicago named Matt Rosenberg, uh, who was a restructuring advisor among other things, and one of the smarter guys that I know who can cut to the quick on pretty much everything, and. Um, he, he helped me deal with that bankruptcy in ways that, that you know, nobody mm -hmm. else would have done. If I had been able to pull someone like him in mm -hmm. right on day one and bring to a head this 300 million hole that you had, letters of credit, one way or the other, decide, yes, we're going to be able to find a solution to that. And here it is with bank group and you're going to take that. And if you don't, I'm filing bankruptcy. And you know what? You know, you're not getting 100 cents on a dollar. Had we done that to the guys who were the relationship bankers before there were any busted covenants, before there was anything else, and so before the workout lenders came in, we might have pulled that off. And I'm not saying we would have, but mm -hmm. we might have pulled that off mm -hmm. um, and had them extend that facility and say, oh, yes, Apollo. Oh, yes, KKR. $250 million, thank you very much. Here's your three- to five-year extension. You need to go to it and see what you could do. Then I would have other problems on my hands still because mm, I'd have three mm. years to get rid of those arenas yeah. in one fashion or the other. I sold one to Henry Samueli, uh, the uh, Broadcom billionaire, um, who then bought the Ducks as well, and sold another to a Bermuda billionaire, a Canadian guy who bought Ottawa Senators and, uh, and, that, and that arena. Maybe that hole wouldn't have been 100, 300 million at that time. Maybe you would have gotten it down to 150 or 200. You take your lumps and you move on. Mm -hmm. And I've been really appreciative of how open you are with all of the failures that you actually outlined in the podcast today. What do you think, and obviously the, the theme here is about failure hypothesis. What kind of learnings, if you were to boil it down to even one key learning, what did you think you learned from 
all their failures or one of them? Well, sometimes, you know, being having the right motivations um, isn't enough. Being smart, um, and again, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, isn't, isn't enough. Um, sometimes you need help from people mm -hmm. who've been there, done that before, um, and can see things that you don't see. As I said, if I had been able to bring in an advisor earlier on, maybe who was the right advisor? I brought in advisors, just the wrong advisors. But bring in advisors who can cut to the quick and bring things to a head, and be willing to, um, you know, do what I did when I when I when I brought that company into bankruptcy. I said to the bank group, "Look at, I, I want to do you a favor. Mm -hmm. You can take your letters of credit. You can roll them into a, what's called a dip facility, a debtor in possession facility, so you prime everybody else." Um, and then maybe, you, can, you know, you can help orchestrate this bankruptcy. And I'm doing that as a favor for you. Or I can just file bankruptcy because I don't need your money. I don't yeah. need any cash from you. I, I'm, I'm generating a lot of money. Thank you very much. And maybe what I should have done is just done that. It's just file bankruptcy, turn them into an unsecured claim and, and screw them mm -hmm. and uh, come out on top. And I know that sounds sort of uh, tough, but I... I I didn't have that opportunity to do that because I was playing to, to see if I could solve everybody's problem at the same time instead of choosing that priority. And I should have maybe chosen priority early on and done that. Bankruptcy would have happened regardless. Mm -hmm. But how you get through that bankruptcy, bankruptcy. and what happens yep. at the end may have been you know, much different. So Scott, what does the word failure mean to you? And how have your feelings about failure changed over the years? I think failure, to me, again, uh, I have the responsibility gene. Mm -hmm. So failure is when you have a responsibility and you, and you don't live up to it. Mm -hmm. Is it responsibility or expectations? I think it's true failure is, is responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, expectations don't pay the rent. Um, you know, they, it's like reading your business card. What does it matter? It, you know, you shouldn't spend much time looking at it. So I, I, I think it's, it's responsibilities. And I, and I do think to sort of say the inverse of that, I think the reason why I have gotten ahead in my career and in, in addition to maybe that growth mindset, uh, is that I've always had a sense of responsibility. I've tried to figure out where it is and, and tried my very best to parse that. And it hasn't been, always been perfect um, by any stretch. But um, if, if, if one looks at taking ownership over what they're really supposed to be responsible for, mm. shedding the things that they're not responsible for, and not failing at those, then I think you've done, you've done well. I, I hesitate to say success, mm -hmm. but at least you've avoided failure. I wanted to go back to even like you were talking about um, your childhood and the relationships there because often the really strong relationships are made during hardships. Um, so I was really curious about, you know, how that childhood and maybe if you're open to sharing some of the failures and learnings from those childhood that shapes you into the leader that you are today. Well, <clears throat> Martin Amos, the famous uh, author, a really 
quite gifted, um, wrote in one of his books that, you know, our parents do damage to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents had, had um, it's almost like a fair a family heirloom, right? Their parents had handed them damage mm-hmm. and they turned around and they handed it to us. <clears throat> and hopefully, you know, as I said about my brothers and, and myself, hopefully we haven't done that much damage to our kids. Um, so I was, you know, I, uh, my, my father um, left to his own devices, would start drinking at 11, 12 in the morning. My mom uh, was the sort. She was both the north star and the, the means of support, and mm-hmm. her, like the only financial security, mm-hmm. and volatile as hell, totally. emotionally or yeah, anger wise. Yeah, okay. Anger wise, because she'd been handed a you know some short sticks in her life. Yeah, um, quite a bit, and raised five sons on her own, which is enough to drive anybody crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of you know love and admiration for her. But what it left me feeling was very unsettled, very insecure, particularly financially, and that there was a slippery slope. Um, uh, my oldest brother died indigent in East LA at age mm-hmm. 55. Mm-hmm. Uh, my second oldest brother's doing fine and he's done now. He's retired. He's, he's you know he's really good. <clears throat> but when we were kids in in you know high school. I mean, he was getting me to do drugs at age 14, and, and he was... This is your brother? Yeah, and he, and he was three years older than me. Is that a way to escape? Was I didn't want to. Yeah. It was kind of peer pressure, you know. Mm, you know interesting. Here, here, do this. Interesting. And it wasn't really my mindset. I didn't yeah. really enjoy it. Um, uh, most of it, I say. Occasionally <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Just maybe a little bit. But but mostly it was coming back down that I enjoyed. Yeah. I didn't like going up for the ride, the skyrocket ride. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, I said, I, you know, kind of went, talked him through a bad acid trip all night and did things like that. And it was just, I wanted stability and yeah, security. Yeah. And that, that drove my career because of two things. One is, you know, again, if you're going to use an old adage, which I think is true, if you live in the future, you're anxious. If you live in the past, you're guilty. If you live in the present, you have contentment. Mm-hmm. And, That's what's present. Uh present as in with the poet <laughs> yeah there you go so i uh lived in the future because the present certainly sucked yep very um, unsettled and um i needed to live in the future and i think that made me a good business person in the sense that i was always thinking about what's coming down the road and thinking about how that plays out and <clears throat> uh, both my personality type and my legal background sort of made me think of things as a precedent mm-hmm. so if xyz happened in the past and I see this same sort of formation happening here, lining up. You know, now can I recognize that in advance? And what do I do about that? And and I can be pretty logically relentless about trying to push those things. And I learned to control anxiety by trying to control things that can go wrong before they go wrong as best as you can. Because you're predicting them. I was trying my very best to, yeah, to sort of see that pattern in advance and predicting them and impatient if, if people didn't get there. And I think that and this need to, I didn't need to be the best mm-hmm. um, because I, I wouldn't have ever been, but I needed to be among the best. I needed to be someone, you know, because to me, if you weren't, then it was a slippery slope and you could, you could fall right down to the bottom. And I, so I do think that, you know, my youth had a big impact on me and it's really only these last, you know, few years having had a, you know, and still continuing to have a good career at Denim with a, a good team and everything, then I've been able to sort of back off um, that 
anxiety level and think more about living in the in the uh, um, in the present and 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 part of that was was actually in my spare time for the last you know a couple of years writing a novel which is there's nothing that's going to get you to live in the present um, yeah definitely and that has been a key how, factor how did you it. get into that was that something you've always wanted to do no i went yeah well kind of a little bit but i went to um a cognitive a really good cognitive behavioral therapist uh, a woman from australia mm-hmm. and because uh, i wanted to think about all right how do i get more to live in in the, in the present yeah and she gave so me, how did you become aware of that um because i guess you were always chasing the future and you you know built a career out of that very successfully yeah. and then at what point did you feel like oh okay is it because you had the capacity to or was there a trigger that kind of made you more aware? I think I hit age 60 and I thought, you know, and I also felt financially secure mm-hmm. um, enough that I thought this is sort of ridiculous that I'm, I mean, it's really ridiculous at this point that I'm, that I'm living in the future. I, I, and but there's a lot of people that actually are doing that, but they don't even know that. Well, I, my wife nagging in my ear, and I and I say that affectionately, mm-hmm. um, that um, I needed to do more to, you know, settle down a, a little bit and be more. I mean, I shouldn't say settle down because I'm not irascible. Uh, she probably actually like me to be more emotional, um, but I'm always thinking about stuff in the future, and mm-hmm. I'm the sort of guy who can walk into a room and literally not realize that all the furniture has been rearranged, mm. and sit down in a chair, and and I just won't. Because I'm in my head yep. and I'm thinking about something. What's happening after this meeting? Yeah. Like what's <laughs> happening after this meeting? Um, you didn't rearrange the furniture in here, did you? Today? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> so, I hope um, you like the white chair. <laughs> it was red. Uh, you know, now that you mention it. Um, so I, um, uh, I, I decided that I should go, uh, you know, do some work and kind of see what it was. And so this woman, you know, really bright, um, and she had all kinds of therapy um, Did you background. just find her, or was it through connection? I or? found her, believe it, online. I found some of my best things online, um, I have, including the main mentor for my novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I I've, I've found a lot of things online. Um, actually, I found my wife online before it was online dating. Um, uh, that's another story that goes back years and years. Um, so... Um, she gave me these exercises to do, you know, to, to like, to try, you know, so it's sort of rote CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy exercises. And I was a failure. I was a miserable failure at all of these exercises. And thankfully, she had a lot more, you know, sort of cards up her sleeve than just CBT tricks. Yeah. And so she finally turned to me and she goes, you know, you need to do something creative because that's the only thing that is going to get you to live in the moment. And in the early 2000s, I actually had a rock band in, in New York City. And I wrote all the songs and we played. Um, so I was like CEO uh, by the day and, you know, trying to do rock and stuff at, at the night. Oh, um, can you play us something later? Uh, <laughs> yeah, like over by the window and you could help me out. <laughs> um, could be the soundtrack of the podcast. <laughs> Just hinting it. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, and... I felt like that it wasn't creative enough, honestly, because I thought I I hit my musical limits relatively early on, and I needed to collaborate with other people, and it would just be a lot of work. 
because I would do all the instruments myself and I'd mm. give them over to people. And, and I, I decided, so I was, I was on another business trip and the, um, you know, you have to, sh the alert goes on that you have to shut down your laptop and everything. So I had put my work away and I pull, pulled out my iPhone and I just started typing fiction in it. Oh. I just started and I thought, well, let me just type some fiction. And I literally felt serotonin in my brain. I just, it was just crazy how I felt. And I was ecstatic about it. And That's I showed, amazing. I showed it to my wife, who thankfully didn't say what she was thinking, which is, this sucks. Um, <laughs> but uh, what was the fiction around? I, it was putting a, a guy in a conundrum and mm. having him study his, uh, his navel a little bit. And I think the precursor, the, sort of the book, that comes to mind is Richard Ford Independence Day, mm. um, which um, had a lot of that, but I love the book. Mm -hmm. um, of course, he's accomplished. He was an author. Mine was, you know, sort of junior level at that point, but it was that sort of thing. No mm. plot attended to it, but it was just, you know, you had 25 minutes. And, and so I decided, yeah, I'm going to go do this. And um, and so I started to, to, you know, work on the novel. And it's been, you know, sort of two and a half years now almost, you know, weekend time, evening time, airplane time, stuff like that. And it really made a, a, a sea change in how I um, thought about stuff. And my therapist at one point said, listen, dude, um, you can't take the least important thing of work as more important than doing that. You have to, have to you know, start to rebalance your time. Yeah, I was going to ask, was it more of a whenever you felt the words were coming to you. No, yeah. no, it can't be whenever because work calls. Yep. You know, it does call. But when you're looking at, you know, an African energy report from four months ago, you can actually put that away. <laughs> and you can do some writing. That's, you know, it's four months ago. If it was important, somebody would have told you about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, that's the sort of choices that I made. That's why it's been, you know, a couple of years. So you feel like the creative side is an interesting outlet. It's an, um, it's an, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for staying in the present mm -hmm. and um, being in the present has kind of been your biggest failure. It has been. Interesting. Very. I wouldn't say it was my biggest failure, but it's certainly, you show me, I've always said that you show me anybody who is really, really good at something and there's a flip side to that. Mm -hmm. So Michael Jordan may be the best basketball player there ever was. But I'm sorry, he's kind of a jerk, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think there's other examples I've I've seen like that. So it served its purpose mm -hmm. for me. It definitely served its purpose. It no longer serves its purpose. You know, um, there's not crises uh, in my present job. We're very measured and thoughtful about how we do things. Things are working. It's a great organization. The, the guy who founded it um, runs it the right way. So I, I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be living in the future. That's great. And like you're saying, the creative side, the mentor there is kind of coming back to that theme of the mentor. And actually she was the one who said, you're failing <laughs> at being creative initially, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of really forced you to kind of go, oh, okay, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And how are you? how is the book coming along now? I just got final uh uh, packaging edits uh, from my mentor, who is perhaps the smartest person I've ever met. And she's amazingly smart. She's written 
seven novels. Her eighth novel is now um, in the final editing phase with the publisher. Um, Can you share her name? Uh, sure, Sarah May. She is, oh, yeah. she is really brilliant. And a lot of her writing has reminded me of Marta Manis. Mm. Um, she's acerbic, she's witty, uh, she's got a rapier uh, wit, and uh, I could never write as well as her. I, I couldn't, but I'd like to have you know, that sort of standard up there to be uh, pulled along with. And she's kicked my ass. I mean, it sounds like you like the challenge. Oh, I do, I, I do. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, that I was not the most intelligent guy. I was mm -hmm. not the best athlete, certainly not the best singer or musician or anything else. The one thing, and I don't know when this hit me, I, I tend to think it was third, fourth grade, and we don't go, need to go there. But the one thing I think somehow I got was, was um, Carol Dweck's growth mindset. Mm. Uh, which was, if I fail at something, that just shows me how I'm going to go not fail at it, right? I'm, I'm really pissed at the time that I have, but now I'm not going to go fail at that. Now I'm yep. going to go um, do that. And, um, you know, that's very helpful. And so I think, in a sense, Sarah May at one point thought I wasn't necessarily going to come back. Like, you know, she said, so, you know, here's 20 chapters you give me. Let's start with the ones that work. And I'm going to give you comments on those. And they were, you know, they were not just like, you know, oh, you just need to do a little bit here. They were pretty, you know, honest. Yeah, straightforward. <laughs> and, you know, and then she looked at these other chapters and said, they don't work. Those chapters don't work. So let's start over again and think about what a chapter needs to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I said, wow, you know what you just did? You just cut, sort of gave me the Rosetta Stone. So now I can go every chapter that I write, I can say, I need to do X, Y, Z in that. And now, that will carry me to where I need to be. And I can help be the judge of that. And I turned the book around and she said, you have a book. Wow. You have a book. And now I'm giving you, you know, these edits. And I think you should do this. And I think you should do that. And then I turned it around again, gave her the whole thing. And she said, you know, these are packaging edits and, and you can move forward. And, you know, we'll see what happens with it. But I'm, you know, really quite pleased. Yeah. I was going to ask, how are you feeling about it? Because it's a journey, right? It's not just the end destination yeah. or the product of the book. Right. The, you know, it served its purpose in terms of getting me in the present. Mm -hmm. It served its purpose in terms of having me feel really productive about something and expanding an area of my mind that I hadn't. Yeah, I've been doing energy for 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but... Um, is there friction in energy as well? Uh, <laughs> I do. It's, it is, I, it's, a, it's a... I put two people in, in, in cauldrons, uh, a, a woman and a man, and I do it in the context of a, um, a startup in the digital uh, media world uh, run by a luminary who came from the uh, TMT, um, well, you know, section, the head of that, uh, one of the bulge bracket banks, who was larger than life character. Um, and so I used my knowledge of corporate settings and all the corporate stuff that I've been through, particularly back at Ogden, because there was a lot of stories mm -hmm, back mm -hmm. then. Um, and then I wrote a realistic book about a woman who's sexually attacked and about a guy who's got um, problems from trauma from when he was a kid and then having to deal with that with his daughter and having a, a, a family marriage and then have them have to sort of solve a problem together and mm. have her take the lead and him sort of learn courage from her. Mm. So I don't want to spoil the ending. Um, um, so I'm really curious. Let me know when you finish with editing and packaging it up. And I would love 
to oh. take that journey one day. Thank you. Well, I, I am, you know, I will be going to literary agents later this year and hopefully somebody picks it up. Yeah, we'll see. We'll if see. not, I'll self-publish. I'm going to read out the failure hypothesis and would love to hear if you are a believer or a skeptic to this hypothesis. So our greatest failures are our most important experiments. Yet emotion often prevents us from examining and learning from these unexpected outcomes. There is constant pressure to celebrate success and hide failures. However, if we practice radical honesty and have the strength to be vulnerable, then we can turn our failures into the secret of our own success and help others to do the same. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And I, and I think it, it's not just business. I think it's personal. Uh, I think that we're, many people are very apt to be defensive mm. um, and not want to own up to... Probably what, even more impersonal sometimes. Yeah, but so... Yeah, and I think, but it it applies across the board to 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 both. I think where um, instead of it, there's um, Jocko Willits, uh, an ex Navy SEAL, wrote this book, Extreme Ownership, um, and then a follow on book because I think people took the first one too seriously, um, like to the extreme, uh, and it was essentially looking at what you own and what you don't own and, and it may be counterintuitive and I'm not usually not into those kinds of books but actually it's all about empowerment of people mm -hmm. and um, and not just being the guy who's going to take the hill and put the flag up there and, and you know I'm the greatest guy it's, uh, there's a lot of humility in terms of what they're teaching and part of that humility is figure out what you could have done better and how you did it I, I think actually I you don't know me well enough that I bored you that much, Vivian, with all the sports um, metaphors and analogies I use. But Michael Jordan, um, when he was still active, I remember reading an article where he talked about tearing apart every game. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of focusing on all the great things he did, he focused on things he didn't do that he wanted to do. And instead of just lamenting it or finding fault, he played it back in his head to try to get the synapses to work the right way, like envisioning what he should have done. And I, and I think in personal life and in business, the more that we can actually sort of freeze frame and figure out what happened at that, that moment or what do we do over that course of that time that we could have done differently. And I'm not necessarily, I'm not seeking atonement for it. I'm not, I don't have to be guilty for mm -hmm. it. I mean, maybe I am, maybe I should have been. But it's, it's independent of that. It's what could I have done better? And so if you're not willing to embrace any sort of failure, you're not willing to look and say, what could I have done better? Then you'll never get better. You won't get better. It won't happen. But as, and, and, and I literally have just heard that hypothesis anew for the first time. If, if you take what they've said and said it can be whatever, I'm going to paraphrase, the seed to your success, it actually can because... You can do what Michael Jordan did. You can say, that didn't work. What could have worked? Let me think about that, envision that, and see if I can get the synapses in my head to start working that way for the next time and, and create a, a sort of a vision for something that's better. 
but you can never do that if it's, you know, to use Michael Jordan as an example, I pass to John Paxson and miss the shot. It's mm-hmm. all John Paxson's fault. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, well, maybe I hit him with the, you know, the ball at his knees, or maybe I did this, or maybe I did that. What could I have done? So what, do I, what is it that I could have done better? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people fail. And as I said before, I'm pretty relentless about um, that in my personal and my um, and my business connections. If people aren't willing to look at what they can do better, me too. If they just want to push it on everybody else, then I don't have much patience for them. So taking us back to the present and a little bit of the future, I don't want to be rushing you to about the future too much. What are you currently working on right now? Well, Denim has built a great sustainable infrastructure um, franchise. Um, we've been among the first in a lot of things that we've done. We mm-hmm. were doing uh, solar back when it was um, called alternative energy, um, you know, and, and we did uh, the largest solar project um, in Italy of its time, and we did the two largest solar projects of the time in Australia. We've done some of the largest first solar projects in um, in Latin America, and built a massive sort of wind project or wind company in Brazil. So we've done all these things. And mm. and I think it's got a bright future in the sense of, you know, the, this world has changed. If I can get on the pulpit for a second, what's happened with the transcendence of wind and solar from things that were expensive to things that are lowest cost is if you want to get to net zero, you need to electrify everything you possibly can and use wind and solar for it. And so this energy transition Mm -hmm. is real. Mm -hmm. And um, I think denim is really well positioned Mm -hmm. uh, to go beyond, uh, to obviously do the same thing we've been doing with firsts and wind and solar, but also to continue on with other energy transition infrastructure. So, so I think that's, you know, that's the mainstay. And I think, you know, I feel very happy about that. I'm quite happy with our team. I would note that in this office here in London, we're, 60 or 70 percent female Mm. and that was a conscious hiring decision uh yeah i mean because if you don't push for it you don't get it Mm because everybody including recruiters goes to their same old haunts and they come back with the same you know same people and it's you know we've got a blend of of more men in the states that are still part of this practice but um we've got a a back office that's a lot of women so it's that is something that's that's been very important with me um i do as you know i do some angel investing on the side and there i've um, I've put my foot down that I really want to back women because you're painfully aware of the statistics are, are ridiculous about how underfunded women are and the sort of sexist remarks that get made in meetings with, yep. you know, with VC firms and angel investors and the Sadly, like. Sadly, yes. Personally experienced that. Uh, and so I, you know, I, if nothing else, I, I can sort of be impactful that way, um, even if I'm not really involved with the founder at all, but at least I've put my foot down there. I've made two exceptions, uh, three exceptions with male founders out of the sort of 30-ish investments that I've made. Uh, two are energy transition mm-hmm. uh, technology uh, that I think is, is, you know, Denim wouldn't make a technology investment itself. Uh, okay, we, yeah. We're, we build infrastructure with proven technology, so this is not proven yet. Um, and you know, I think they're they're quite phenomenal. One is called Rondo, Rondo Energy out of San Francisco, and one is called Desalinator out of the Netherlands. And they're taking what's happened because, again, my point of how low cost renewables are—they're taking renewable power now 
and turning it into industrial heat that you can use for everything from making cement to desalinating or puri uh, purifying water to ultimately running turbines mm -hmm. and creating electricity. Mm -hmm. And I feel strongly about those. And then the other was some guy who's, um, I wanted to be in the Africa crowd. He's an African who really made his career in uh, the States working with Oprah Winfrey and people like that. So I went along for the ride on that one. <laughs> and how, how can people find out a little bit more, both about Denim and also uh, as connecting to you as a potential angel investor? Well, Denim, we've got a website, and mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the best way. And, and, and uh, so I'd say just to go through the through the website. Uh, in terms of angel investing, uh, I uh, belong to a few networks, and the Alma Angel Network has been, you know, very very helpful for me. It's um, and that's spelling A L M A. Three women and a man founded it, and it's focused on women founders. Uh, founded, Is that based in London? London, based yeah. in London. But their membership goes um, to the States and, mm -hmm. and the continent here. Um, and they they have been absolutely wonderful. There's a, um, a few other offshoots, um, Sea Ventures and Hermesa. And, uh, and then there's some funds that are, that are women-led that focus on diversity, like January Ventures and um, others that are up in the making. And... Uh, firms like Zinc and others. And so I've been able to have been fortunate to get in that crowd and and it's it's been wonderful, wonderful people. So I've I've really, you know, been a beneficiary of all that. And the best thing is, you know, founders have recommended me to other founders, mm. including one one case I, one of my early investments was a, a Sri Lankan woman who is uh, turning is making um, plastic replacements uh, that are entirely uh, biodegradable. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was an From... applied, applied engineer. Okay. Uh, started out with seafood waste, but it's becoming polymers, oh. creating their own polymers. Oh, that's yeah. interesting because I've heard a lot about the seafood waste. So how how did that pivot happen? Uh, they found that they were. I, now I'm not a scientist, so if I get this wrong, you can't sue me. But they found that, um, that what they were really trying to do is extract polymers from the seafood waste, and so mm -hmm. they should just mm -hmm. go to the polymers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and very bright uh, woman. Well, she buzzed me one day and said, would you mind talking to my sister? And these are two kick-ass uh, women from Sri Lanka who went to, you know, Duke and, and Stanford and and then I think, you know, had other high degrees here and then worked for, you know, fantastic companies. And, you know, I'm learning about things that I would not have known about. It's a great of, way to learn, isn't it? Yeah. Through people and entrepreneurs especially. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. And, you know, what I find is a certain humility. I, I actually... Uh, I think I, t I told you before the podcast today that I was listening to a co-invest call and, re and mm -hmm. I turned it down. And one of the reasons why I turned it down is the woman needed to mention five or six times that she went to Harvard. Um, and it just sort of turned me off. There's a tip here, listeners. <laughs> I think being true to yourself is actually one of the most valuable assets as an entrepreneur. And often we kind of forget that along the way or... We often get told to only show the the showbiz side. <laughs> so I really, really appreciate um, having you on this podcast today to actually bring out the humility, um, both as a leader, as a male leader, as a father, um, and also as my mentor as well. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, Vivian, it's a, it's a real pleasure and thank you for having me.
You've been listening to the Failure Hypothesis with me, Vivian Chan. To hear other inspiring stories from unique leaders, please subscribe to the Failure Hypothesis on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Failure Hypothesis, a Maledro Digital production. To find out more about making and appearing in business content with interest, visit our website at maledrodigital.com.